Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people, and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here in New York City at Vox Media Headquarters. But you won't be hearing my voice much longer. Soon you're going to hear Lauren Good, my friend who was formerly my co-worker at Vox Media. She was a writer at The Verge. Now she's left for Wired. We're very sad, but we're very happy that before she left, she recorded this interview with Axie Navis, the executive editor of Outside Magazine. We'll bring you there in one second. Before we go there, my standard request, if you like Recode Media, because you're listening to Recode Media right now, tell someone else so they can like it too. Okay, here's Lauren Good talking to Axie Navis, executive editor of Outside Magazine. Have fun, guys. Thanks, Peter. I'm here today with Axie Navas. She's the executive editor of Outside Magazine. She's been the executive editor since early 17. And more recently, she started to oversee the digital efforts of Outside. She also has big plans to diversify Outside's writing staff as well as its audience. More women everywhere, basically, is what we're going to be talking about today. Axie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Lauren. It's great to have you here in San Francisco. You came from Santa Fe, New Mexico, because that is where Outside is based, which I'm not sure many people know. No, that's where our editorial offices are. So about 40 of us are there, plus production and uh, the rest of the crew that is involved in putting a magazine together. And then we have sales offices all over the country. But and Santa I imagine a lot of freelancers Exactly. Well. Freelancers right. all over the world. Right. So when I first said to Peter that he should invite you on the podcast, and he suggested that I do the interview, I was pretty happy about that because I am a longtime reader of Outside. But I'll get yeah, thumbs up, right? But I will admit that I was reading it mostly because I was just picking up the magazine like, like at airports or I don't know, when I felt like I needed to read Outside Magazine. And then more recently, I became a subscriber. And the reason why I subscribed is because late last year, Outside said it was going to be doing a survey on sexual harassment. There were some unkind responses to that online, specifically on Outside's Facebook page. And the Matt, you know, you're nodding because you know what I'm getting at. And then, the, and then outside responded with basically, "Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Like, if you don't like it, don't subscribe." And I was really impressed by uh, sort of the fortitude of that response and the risk that you were kind of taking in doing that. So I wanted to talk about that. I mean, how did you decide that that was the the response? Sure. I mean, I think we just had some like women in the office who were just pissed off at like the mostly the men's responses on the Facebook post. And that was in response to that sexual harassment survey that we had um, put online because we wanted to get a lot of responses from a lot of different types of readers for a big sexual harassment feature that we ran in the magazine. And so we were just like a little bit surprised by the tone that those comments had taken, even though we shouldn't be because we all like spend a lot of time on Facebook and that's like how comments often devolve. But we didn't want that like sexist tone to go unanswered. Um, And so me and Aaron Berger, who's the senior editor who wrote that response, put our heads together and we debated a little bit if we were just giving like a voice to the trolls. Um, And in the end, we're like, no, you know what? We're just, we're going to say this because it's important to us as people and women and editors uh, and it's important to us as a magazine that this is the the stance that we take. So I don't know. We almost like didn't even view it as like a big risk, even though maybe because we didn't like think about it fully. Uh, but I think in the end, we ended up uh, having a really strong response, which we were gratified to see. We had a lot of people who said that they were actually going to subscribe because of that. And I'm glad that it sounds like you were in that camp, too. 
Uh, that's not what we expected, but we were just really grateful to see that uh, and really heartened to see it. What are, what are the numbers that you're seeing since that happened? Have you seen any kind of uptick in subscriptions or people unsubscribing? We didn't really see anyone unsubscribed. We saw the, the most immediate reaction was like a couple. We had a few people who stopped liking the Facebook page, but mm-hmm. then we had several thousand likes that day. You know, So that was just like a spike that we saw directly because of that. Uh, subscriptions have been slower to track, but we definitely saw a spike in the next, like the month after that. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just like a little bit slower uptick. It was mostly just like the supremely positive social response, which we were, like I said, really excited to see. Mm -hmm. So no regrets. You do do it again. Do it again. Absolutely. If you don't like it. Absolutely. We actually had something like that come up today. Uh, we wrote Latria Graham, who's a, um, South Carolina essayist wrote a piece about, why professional cycling should get rid of podium girls, which she argued is a super antiquated practice and kind of all of our editors agree with her. Uh, We posted that today on Facebook and so many men responded and they're like, no, this is a great thing. You know, like it's absurd. And a lot of women were like, no, we should get rid of this. So this is all on Facebook. This is all on Facebook. Yeah. So it was like the same. It was very similar conversation. So already we're thinking like, should we respond to these guys or do we wait and just keep running these, these essays? So just, yeah, it's something that we're thinking about all the time. What was the tipping point for your editorial staff where you determined that you wanted to launch the sexual harassment survey and that this was something you you were going to be covering more often? I mean, I think in a recent issue, there was a pretty big feature about um, sexual harassment of river guides. That's just one of many stories you've done in recent months about this topic. What was the tipping point? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, if we're talking about like sexual harassment, that's a huge mainstream conversation. And so outside when we're at our best as a magazine and uh, a website and just across all our platforms, podcast, social, we want to be in the mainstream conversation and we want to have a voice. And we want to enter into that conversation in an outside way, but we also want to make sure we're part of the conversation. So it's almost like less of a tipping point and more of a, we all sit down together and we say, what's happening across the board? What's, what's a big national conversation right now and how do we get into this? That said, the sexual harassment piece in particular uh, has been, you could, you could look at it as an outgrowth of our efforts to become more inclusive. That started early 2017 kind of as, like a, as a strong push, although we'd been working on that for years before that. But really starting in 2017, we said, we took a hard look at how the magazine had been perceived in the past. The magazine was founded in 1977, so it's been around for a while. Um, has a deep, really strong archive. We wanted to look at how that archive had been perceived, who was writing in that archive, and how we could start to modernize it across, like I said, all our platforms, print, online, podcast. And so the sexual harassment is part of that effort, for sure. Although, like I said, the the effort to to participate in those big conversations um, has been there really since the beginning. I wanted to back up just a little bit for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the outside. And then I, I do want to return to this topic and specifically your role in, in shaping that coverage. Outside's been around uh, in print since 1977, you mentioned, based in Santa Fe. Uh, who owns Outside? Larry Burke. Okay. Uh, so. Who's the founder of the of the magazine as we know it. Um, mm-hmm. And he's still the owner. He's in Santa Fe. We see him almost every day. Uh, which is kind of like unusual and exciting to be that close to the the founder and owner. And Neiman Lab wrote recently that your circulation is about 675,000 in print. Online, you get about three and a half million unique page views per month. Exactly. Um, Is that that an uptick? I mean, can you talk a little bit about sort of the trajectory of, of the magazine? 
Yeah, the, the, traffic wise, so those uniques is definitely an uptick. Uh, we've seen pretty steady growth year over the year for the past five years. And that's our continued goal. We want to keep seeing about 20% month over year over year growth um, each month. And, you know, I think we that that's also that part of this conversation that we're having where, where we're thinking about how does the magazine become more more inclusive. It's an audience growth conversation, too. It's how do we make sure that more people are reading this magazine? How do we reach younger people? How do we reach people who live in cities? How do we reach people in organizations who haven't read this magazine before, maybe because they haven't seen themselves in this magazine? We want to reach out to all those communities. Mm -hmm. And you first joined in 2014, correct? Correct. You were, is that right out of college? Yeah, I'd worked a, a brief stint as a newspaper reporter in South Lake Tahoe. Uh, which was fun because I got to write about things like paragliding, you know, and just like a lot, a lot of writing every day for a daily. Uh, and then I worked for a gear review site, Blister Gear Review, for a couple of months uh, in Santa Fe before taking the job at Outside. So in 2014, exactly. Okay. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. But what did the magazine look like when you first joined compared to now? Um, because I mean, the the breakdown of your audience seems as though, like, spoiler alert, it's still mostly male. Um, you, according to the Neiman article, uh, you seem to intentionally be, you know, going after more female bylines. What did it look like in 2014 when you first joined? The biggest difference is that we had, like, a very different digital presence. Uh, it was a, the website existed uh, and had existed for many years, but it was just a much scrappier part of the company. So it was... Like there was like a three or four full-time online editors. And I started as an online editor. The story quality just wasn't as good because we were still figuring out who our voice was as a digital publication, how to bring the long-standing story quality of the magazine to the website, um, how many stories we should be publishing each day. Those were all just still very basic questions that we needed to answer. Um, and it didn't give our editors online a lot of the bandwidth to think like, how do we our main focus was making the stories better. We weren't asking ourselves, how do we reach more people at that point? Or how do we reach a different audience? We just wanted to bump up the quality of the website. So that, I guess, is the most concrete uh, change that I've seen since I started, is the website is a much more professional publication. We also now are a much broader company, uh, like a lot of legacy media brands. We have a podcast. We have pretty robust social platforms. We have a robust website. And so the idea wasn't, let's just take the magazine stories and publish them online. It was how do we sort of create an entirely different experience online. Exactly. And that's kind of what had been happening in 2014. We were obviously publishing everything that went in the magazine online. Um, but, you know, we have our general manager was higher up on the website at that time, Scott Rosenfield. And he's really helped lead the charge to make the, the website a brand that stands on its own. So that has been a goal since 2014, um, and that has definitely, we've had a lot of success there, which is exciting. I've read that you have a pretty systematic approach to try and get more women to write for the magazine so you can be more inclusive in your content and therefore attract a different kind of audience. And you require a certain number of pitches. There, there's a pitch process. Talk about that. Yeah, so it's definitely, it's, it's a company-wide effort to bring more women on board, to have more women writing for us, to have more women reading our magazine. And so 
I've tried to be systematic about it, but it's certainly like it's not an effort. I don't want to make it sound like I'm leading this effort because it's just like across the board. We have a lot of really smart people who are excited about this. Um, Mary Turner, our deputy editor, edited an issue uh, last May in the print magazine that was focused exclusively on women. And that's been kind of a kickoff to this initiative where, where we've had a hard look at how we've covered women in the past and basically outside's lack of coverage of of women. And that was kind of the kickoff to the effort to, to fix that. So you're right. Yes, we're trying to be really systematic about it. We're asking our channel editors. So these are editors who edit like departments to track bylines. So we're, we're aiming for 50-50, a 50-50 ratio across digital and print. We're reaching out to more writers who have, who have not written for us in the past um, and giving really clear guidelines on what types of pitches that we want. Um, and we're talking about those every week in those story and department meetings. Uh, and we're being really clear that we say we have a lot of, you know, look, look right now, one of our channels has a lot of male columnists. Mm-hmm. We have to make an effort in the next month to make sure that let's try and equalize that. Let's try and bring on a couple women columnists. You know, and this is not because like women, like we've had women writing for the magazine for a long time, mm-hmm. but, but because we've typically gone back to the same stable of writers, and that stable has historically skewed male. We have just had to put in more effort to say, like, look, we're, we want to make a change. Um, and a lot of that has come to the editors saying, like, this is how we're going to do it. It's interesting because in tech, I mean, tech is not an exact parallel to what we're talking about, but we do talk a lot about tech and media on this podcast. Uh, people, some people will cite the pipeline as sort of a reason or an excuse for why they can't get more women into certain roles. Um, but it's interesting because it sounds like what you're describing is just a much more proactive approach. It's like, look, the pipeline is there, but we have to, we, we can't just rest on the same stable of writers or people or talent that we've relied on, or we can't rely on their network because their network might be another guy. We need to just dig a little bit deeper and it's possible to do this. Totally. Yeah. It's not like I, there are women writing about the outdoors and women writing stories that like should be in our magazine. Um, and have been for like decades. So it's not like we're like uncovered. And it's, we've also had women reading our magazine for years, you know? So in part, it's like listening to those voices and also exactly like you said, trying to be proactive to reach out to writers who historically might've thought like, eh, I'm not an ultra runner, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if I can write for outside. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not right. You know, like we're looking for all these stories and it's not just like the core athlete focused ones. right. So if John Krakauer pitches you next month and you're you're you've got your mail fill already. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, take it elsewhere. Take it to the New Yorker, John. Yeah, take it somewhere else. <laughs> I'm sure that wouldn't happen. But but yeah, I mean I think when people think about outside who have at least been somewhat familiar with the magazine, he's sort of emblematic of the writer you you think of, right? And maybe fewer people would realize like, oh, Susan Casey was actually a you know, creative editor f- there for a few years. And yep. there are all these other fantastic women who have written for the magazine. Yeah, totally. Florence Williams mm-hmm. uh, is a longtime contributor and has an, uh, a big feature coming up in May in the print magazine about this really awesome organization, She Is Able, that gets kind of disenfranchised women in the outdoors. So yeah, we have a lot of like very longtime contributors in this mm-hmm. space. It's just tended it has tended to be fewer than the men. So it's like now let's try and shift that ratio. Just even it out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. So this isn't about outside specifically, but when do you think that outdoors related content or fitness magazines won't, you know, it won't become like the women's issue is just once a year or the woman on the cover is this 
you know, fantastic looking woman in a sports bra with like 19 abs, right? Because those are, those are uh, quintessential images that we see sometimes on other health or fitness related magazines. Do you think that will change? Oh yeah. Like right now I want it to change like immediately. Uh, and if we're talking about our print magazine, like we're already, uh, well, to take one step back, like outside, if you're looking at just the covers has also historically skewed male up until about like the last two years, we've had like one woman on our cover and then the rest have been men and like often like white male athletes. But starting this year, we're gonna have 50-50 representation on the covers. And I, I'd like to see us continue to skew less towards athletes and more towards just like people who love the outdoors. Um, and I think our May issue this year is a step in that direction where we're just going to be featuring some really like fantastic people who we have historically not covered. Um, and online, those efforts have have been moving um, fairly rapidly over the last two years, just in that like we publish a lot of stories. So we have like flexibility to throw stuff at the wall and um, and see if it sticks. And we just we have a lot of stories that we can experiment with. Um, but we're making concerted effort, just like we are with bylines uh, and 50-50 representation to make sure that photos are about 50-50. And, you know, we have women and men and not just athletes shown in these photos on our homepage and in our columns and then, of course, on our our social feeds. So that's only speaking for outside. And we obviously, like, I'm also aware that we, we have a long ways to go in many of these areas, but we are, like, making a concerted effort to, like, make that change now. Do certain covers sell better? Is that, is that a hard change to make? Certain covers do sell better. Although just was, Well, I mean, frankly, they don't almost, they don't really have anything to do with like men or women. They're often like our best towns issue. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Um, where people see this like beautiful mountainscape uh, and they want to move there. And then also just like with newsstand sales, like declining or flatlining, it almost also gives us more flexibility because it's like, let's just do something unique. Uh, and often those like unique, strong covers are the ones that catch people's eye. And maybe, hopefully they sell a little better, but uh, you know, hopefully they also just like spark a conversation and show our strong community of readers, like those, subscri- those 675,000 subscribers, make them proud to be part of this community. I do have more questions for you, but we're going to take a quick break so that Peter Kafka can tell you about some of our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. Hey, it's Peter Kafka again. I am still in New York. We're going to be back to Lauren's interview with Axie Navis in just a minute. But first, we want to bring a word to you from a fine sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people. So food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Good news. Farmers are already using AI to help increase crop yields. They use Watson and the IBM Cloud. And they provide access to weather data analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So, as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. That's good. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. And we're back. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Who do you consider your competition to be? Because I look at something like Wirecutter, which, you know, now is owned by the New York Times, but um, basically built its business off the affiliate model. And you guys launched a pretty robust affiliate business last year. Um, but then I also look, you know, on Instagram, any given day, you see all of the, you know, the inertia or other sort of outdoorsy accounts that are starting to build a following off of these viral outdoors videos. Um, and those are just eyeballs, right, that are being brought to all these different places now. 
So who do you compete with? Yeah, I think as you intimate, like our competition is really broad. Um, and like seven years ago, I think someone would have answered that question as like the typical like men's magazines are our competition um, for print. And so it's like GQ and Esquire, um, Men's Journal, Men's Health. And that's just like not the case anymore. Wirecutter, we do we consider a competitor. Um, then there's also like the smaller gear sites. If we're just talking about the gear world, there's Gear Junkie uh, and Gear Institute and Gear Patrol. Um, and these are all competitors with the affiliate model, um, which we have found to be a successful new stream of revenue. Um, but it's also, so we've, we have to take a look at those competitors and say, like, how do we differentiate ourselves or how do we do, how do we offer um, what we're offering? Even How do we make it even better? So and how do you do that? Out? Well, if we're talking about those competitors in particular, um, we've made an effort recently to run much more authoritative gear reviews. We, speaking about like inclusivity of women, we have not done a good job with women's gear in the past. So we're putting a lot of energy there. And that's both a move that's hopefully, we think it's good service to our readers, but it's also a way to differentiate ourselves and enter a market that we think is kind of lagging. There's not a lot of like really great women's gear reviews out there. So that's a space that we think we can own. Um, so part of how we do it, I guess, is like looking at those openings and trying to fill them with experts. So then we reach out to to writers typically and we bring them on board and we have them sign contracts and then we work with them to, to hopefully do these stories better than anyone else. But how do you convince a younger generation? And this is anecdotal, but a younger generation who has their heads buried in their phones, right, that first of all, they should be interested in in the outdoors and, and getting outside and doing outside stuff. And second, that your accounts are the ones that they should be looking at for that information. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we hope that like those people give us the chance. Part of the reason or part of how we're, we're doing it is like through social media strategies, um, our voice. We've put a lot of work into like our voice and our posting frequency on social led by like our awesome social media mavens, Jenny Ernest and Svati Narula. Um, and so we want that voice to be like young and punchy and um, contentious sometimes. And, you know, and the stories reflect that too, that we have like more, um, more essays, we have more strong authoritative opinions. And that does seem to resonate based on like Facebook insights with, with younger people. Um, and our audience is definitely younger on that digital side, I think, in part of that. On the social platforms. On the social platforms. What's the average age of the of the audience you're reaching on social? Uh, late 20s. Okay, interesting. And um, then who, who, uh, what about your print subscriber base? It's like late 30s to mid 40s. Okay. So you are starting to reach those, the younger audiences. It's just a matter of continuing to grow that. Exactly. And I think part of these, what we're talking about with like inclusivity, um, making sure that we're, covering um, and speaking to women in a way that like respects our readers and that they respond to helps so many of the like young consumers in the outdoor industry who are buying gear really respond to um, they want to be aligned with companies that align with their values and so us making sure we're covering these communities we have not historically covered before I think resonates with the younger audience too. So what's an example of that? Well, we spent a lot of time, we've covered um, some like new, young, really powerful outdoor organizations. Mikhail Martin is the uh, founder of Brothers of Climbing. He's this young guy who's going to be in our May issue again, um, and we've, we've covered him in the past. 
Miho Aida is a is a filmmaker who's done so many films about disenfranchised communities, minority communities, who we've not covered in the past. We recently ran a big story on her. Mirna Valerio is a plus-size ultra runner who we've covered, who's also going to be in the May issue. Talking about these communities, looking at Rue Map, Rue Map's another one, um, who she's the CEO of Outdoor Afro. Covering all of these people, these big personalities who we have not historically covered has seemed to resonate with our younger audiences. Interesting. Okay. I want to talk about podcasting too. We'll get very meta here since we're on a podcast. I started listening to the podcast last year at some point uh, and I was hooked by the survival series. I couldn't eat mushrooms for two weeks after the mushroom episode, by the way. And for, for all of you who are listening, you should go listen to the survival series and the, the mushroom episode in particular. That one and the adrift one, the surfer who got caught out to sea. Um, those things really resonated with me. But it was a fantastically produced series. Also, you have the Double X series where you feature people like Diana Nyad and other athletes. But the whole podcast is sort of condensed into one stream. You haven't broken it out. Talk a little bit about the decision around that, why that is, and and where you see podcasting going for you guys. Yeah, the podcast for us has been enormously successful, um, led really by Mike Roberts, who's mm-hmm. our executive editor. Uh, Peter Frick Wright is the host, um, was like the original host of some of those science of survival pieces and just like fantastically talented and incredible storyteller. And to be honest, I think like it's just been like hugely successful. I think like even more successful than we could have predicted. And so we've just seen enormous growth in the past two years. And I think we're kind of still figuring out like where does it go from here? You know, when it first launched, we were just like, we want to get into this space. And we think like some of the outside stories could be told on this medium in a really compelling way. Um, And now we've had advertiser support come in and sponsor particular podcasts um, like the Double X Factor. Um, And we have a couple other uh, series coming up this spring. And so that's been a new, we figured out that business model or now it's it's a business model that's working. And so I think it's in Mike's court to figure out where does it go from here. But so far we've kept it all in that stream because it's just, it's worked where we've had sponsors come in and decide to align themselves with one particular series. Within the same podcast feed. Exactly. But is that driving subscribers in any way? Can you track that? You know, I don't know what the latest numbers on how it's on um, podcast downloads to subscribers. I know it's just broadening our reach. Um, And I think that we have seen an uptick in subscribers, but I don't have those numbers just off the top of my head. But you do believe that the podcast makes people want to subscribe. Yeah. I actually pay then for the content. I do. Mm -hmm. And just also because... It's, it's a new way to get people in the magazine, right? Like it's been a platform that, that has had a pretty broad reach um, and that it's a new medium where people can just like, like just listen, right? Whenever you want. Um, and because it has had so much success and been downloaded so many times, uh, yeah, we also believe that it's just hopefully bringing people to the print magazine. Mm-hmm. I've also noticed that with the print magazine, there's a paywall, obviously. You have to be a subscriber to get access to some of that content, but there also se- it also seems to be windowed in the sense that last month's issue, there was an article about Rainmaker, who we've actually had on a Recode podcast before. You should all go listen to it. But DC Rainmaker, who reviews all kinds of um, outdoor fitness gear. Uh, but then that wasn't online for a while. So I read the print article, which is like, how, how, you know, how many times do people say that today? I read the print article and then it was still not available online because they hadn't concurrently published. So it seems like 
you're sort of very carefully metering out what is free and what is not and what you have to wait for. Well, we actually, we don't have a paywall on the site itself. Um, and I like that sometimes, to be honest, it's not even that well. Like uh, the system is not that professional. The, we try and get the stories up on from the magazine within like within the month that the magazine hits newsstands and sometimes we just like delay a little bit and that's um, not intentional sometimes it's intentional often it's just like we're a little bit slow uh to be honest uh but we are like just we are rethinking that strategy of like maybe we get those all of the stories from that print magazine up a couple weeks before it hits newsstands just so it's a little bit more systematic Interesting. Okay. Because, I mean, you know, a month is like, it's like dog years. I know. I know. It's It's so slow. So slow. (laughs) But, but I mean, it's interesting because, so my intention with going looking for that article after I read it was I'd like to share it because I know Ray and I think it's a, it's a pretty good profile of him. And so I'll share it to my Twitter feed and then maybe other people who know I've, I'm obsessed with wearables will will read it, be interested in it as well. And I just couldn't find it. And I, you know, I even wrote to Ray and I said, hey, is your article online yet? And he said, no, I don't think it is. And I was like, this is so interesting to me because I actually thought it was an intentional window to try to drive people in some way to pay for the content. But it turns out it's just a matter. It's a it's a kind of haphazard approach to like, all right. Well, I yeah, mean, I think we could be a lot you, more maybe like figured something out. It. Yeah, I think it's just like we've we've talked. We have a lot of we do have a lot of conversations about when a big feature goes online, just trying to get everyone lined up so they can promote it on their social channels. So that conversation happens in terms of like using those windows to hopefully drive people to the print magazine. Um, I think for the most part, sometimes our audience just seems a little bit too small to see. Like it, it's hard to quantify that on a um, short term basis, but. Yeah, I appreciate the credit that you give us, and like that is something that I would <laughs> I would love to like keep working on in the future because like audience development and like getting people like signed up and paying for our content is like obviously that's a big goal for 2018. Yeah, I imagine it would be for a lot of magazines for sure. Top five shitholes to visit. That was one of the outside headlines that got a lot of attention last year, and it came on the heels of President Trump's remarks about shithole. You've done the sexual harassment survey. One of your writers recently did a profile of Ryan Zinke, Secretary of the Interior, that um, the kicker at the end was great, but it wasn't a particularly flattering profile in some ways. And there's been some follow-up coverage since, too. Uh, The magazine has published a guide on where people can donate if they want to help public lands. This is all, it's all pretty political in a lot of ways. how obligated do, does the staff of outside feel uh, it is to being political? How political should outside be? I think starting with the election of Donald Trump, so beginning of 2017, uh, we felt a real imperative to be pretty political. I think most of the editors in the office feel like it's kind of been dropped in our lap um, in our space because we have covered we've covered public lands um, for decades. That's where what we write about often takes place. This country has a really strong heritage of public lands. And so with Trump's election and then the appointment of Ryan Zinke, the interior secretary, there have been a lot of changes in that space, a lot of news. Um, The National Monuments Review was mainstream news that's getting covered on the front page of the New York Times. And so I think, like, to be honest, we get pretty excited when things happen like that because we feel like we have a real imperative to cover this news for our readers and that we know this world 
better than anyone else, that we can talk about it with so much authority. We have incredible writers, um, Abe Streep, Chris Solomon, Elliot Woods, who wrote the Zinke profile, um, who have been writing for a magazine for years, writing about these topics for years, and are ready and on deck to write about the news as it happens in a really strong way. So over the course of 2017, 2018, we've really taken, we've really sunk our teeth into the public lands issue and tried to cover it in a really thorough way. Do you feel that impacts the the journalism at all? The sort of ob- objectivity that we as journalists are supposed to have? Yeah, and that's a that's a good question. That's a good way to to basically caveat what I'm saying too is like all of those people that I just named are also like first and foremost like reporters and that's almost that's kind of what I value most about their coverage. Um, we try I think our stance tends to be like you know the, we want to protect these natural places. Um, there's not necessarily one right way to do that. So I don't see this as, as reporting on it like from a pure advocacy standpoint. We're not reporting on it like Patagonia is writing about it when they say the president wants to steal your land. We're taking a much more nuanced journalistic approach. And so ultimately, like all the people who are writing for us are ultimately they're journalists and reporters at heart. So we want to cover these topics in a really authoritative way. But that that also means like making sure our reporting is there. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think like in the Zinke profile that which, came by the through. way, called him uh, Trump's attack dog. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. Right. Uh, Trump's attack dog on the environment. Right. But I guess like even with that, like we actually feel like that's just backed up by the reporting, you know, and that profile, we're just like so proud of it. So proud of the response that it got because we feel like it was a fairly like fair look at him. But but if you look at what has happened, like protections on a lot of these lands have been lifted for oil and gas for energy extractors, mm-hmm. you know, and the administration's like pretty clear about that. And originally he was perceived as to be pretty moderate and green friendly. And then uh, it seems exactly. this has reversed some of his positions, which the profile really underscores. And then since then, I mean, members of the the parks, advi- you know, serve, it's called the parks advisory board, Park service advisory board have yeah. resigned. Exactly. If, effectively in protest of what's going on there. Exactly. The yeah, we've heard like we've reported on the Department of Interior how things are just in flux, and some of the long-term employees are uh, saying that that department is kind of rudderless, like a lot of other departments. Um, but the, so there's just been like there's a lot of been a lot of room for us to report on that pretty deeply. Say like what exactly is happening? Does your audience respond well to that? I mean, it, it, we saw the response to the sexual harassment survey, which wasn't altogether positive. Unfortunately, how do people respond to that when you when your editorial staff takes a more I don't know I don't know if aggressive is the right word but takes more of a stance? Yeah, and I think like aggressive probably like we have tried to be more aggressive. Mm -hmm. Um, We get a lot of comments still that are like, "Why is outside political? Um, You know, outside shouldn't be political. I'm here for I'm not here for politics." And we, we try and listen to that. And and also those like responses have, have um, we've seen less of them recently. We still get that. And we do listen to that. We have conversations about it. We say like, should we be covering this? But like these particular issues, public lands, like we just so sh- uh, clearly should be covering it. It's not, it's not a question of like, we can we stop? It's more a question of like, then how do we respond to those readers and have a conversation on typically Facebook to say like, this is why we're covering it. Because... We all genuinely feel like there's a very clear imperative for us to be first and foremost in some of these issues. And if we just let that go then and just focused on service, you know, our, our magazine's heritage is so much 
richer than that. I think we all feel like we'd be letting the magazine down. Mm -hmm. It's not an uncommon thing, by the way. I mean, especially these days when just pure aggregation of stories or just, you know, stenography of a story is not necessarily going to win you audiences, but having sort of nuanced understanding or an opinion on something might, I mean, we, we, at the verge, we've grappled with that a little bit in terms of how to cover net neutrality because net neutrality is something that so impacts anyone who is effectively in the internet business. Uh, and we are, you know, news distribution on the internet. So, you know, we've had people sort of opine about that, uh, in ways as well, but Back to the point of, like, you mentioned Patagonia earlier, and we've started to see brands getting more and more political. Uh, Patagonia has always had a little, you know, it's in its DNA. It's always had its mission statements. But even more recently with Dick's Sporting Goods taking a stand um, on, on gun sales. Do you think brands need to be political, outdoor brands? I don't know. I have a hard, I would resist saying, like, they need to be. They I think they certainly think they should be in this age. I think it's part of, it relates to the conversation we had earlier that I think like, especially like young people uh, respond to that. Uh, that like, for example, so you mentioned Dick's, like REI also um, has said that they're going to stop at, at least temporarily selling brands that fall under the parent company Vista Outdoor, which also owns um, an assault rifle maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're having that conversation and like at least the the response that we see and then the response that we hear from brands is that the responses to those actions tend to be pretty positive. Do you think they're just saying that though? I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like we see it though too, just like mm-hmm. based on like how people respond. Um, and again, like kind of social is our like way to keep our finger on the pulse and like letters. People talk to us a lot. Like we have um, a bunch of like smaller Facebook groups that we use as like discussion platforms and Obviously, those are smaller sample sizes, but I do tend to think that they're representative of our audience as a whole and that, that people do respond. So I guess actually like the, the long-winded answer is that like I think right now a lot of brands find it um, profitable and useful to have a strong stance on political issues. And I mean, increasingly, like people I think are, are polarized. And so brands are, like everyone else in this country, outdoor brands are, are deciding to step to one side or the other. Mm-hmm. How much of a role does social media play in that too? I mean, social media, it's easier to be sort of glib or put an opinion out there. Like I noticed on Twitter, outside actually kind of trolled Ryan Zinke, you know, with the, the fishing gear. Yeah. It was upside down. And yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's the, I just spoiled the ending of the story, everyone, but you should still, still read, read the profile. <laughs> um, well, that in the, the chubby Chernobyl fly was, I mean, it was... It's great. Uh, well, but, and that's our goal too. Like we want to like have, hopefully like our, our voice too is like kind of irreverent and like playful because we want to make things fun to read. Right, too. right. But it's easy, on, you know, for, for a brand on social to come out and say something on social media or put up a web page that's a very sort of low lift web page these days. Like the accessibility of your audience is it's, it's just right there. I mean, do you think that contributes in any way to how, as opposed to devoting, let's say, an, a print issue to a political, a political topic? Sure. Yeah. I think like just as we have conversations with our readers, right? Like Patagonia is having conversations with our readers when they're posting like the president just stole your land and changing their homepage. So it's all black with that white typeface. And then um, being able to do the same thing on Instagram and Facebook, they can monitor the reactions. And I do think that that's like, that's enabled all of us, right? To have more of these conversations. And it's probably the impetus for taking some of these stronger viewpoints too. Without giving away upcoming stories, what's a, what's a political issue um, that outside is 
keeping an eye on the plans to cover more more closely? Well, the Bears Ears debate continues just to be... So Bears Ears is the national monument um, in Utah that was downsized by Trump and by Zinke after the National Monuments Review. So that's just something that's like con- continues to be very much on our radar, not just Bears Ears, but National Monuments in general. Um, and to tease the story that we do have coming up, a big feature by Abe Streep, uh, he's writing about the um, hotshot Native American lawyers who are suing the Trump administration. They're the first ones to file a lawsuit based on the Bears Ears shrinkage. And so that's one we're really excited to keep following. How, I mean, aside from the Zinke profile, how successful has your team been in getting getting in touch with uh, members of the Trump administration or members of the you know interior for these stories? Like, it, are people on the other side of the story willing to talk to Outside Magazine? Yeah, n- the Trump administration and like the Department of the Interior has not been that easy to work with. Um, so we tend to like source, we, we always try and get, like if there's a story about the Department of the Interior, we're obviously like trying to get like as many voices from the Department of the Interior as we can and certainly their spokespeople. But we also have to report around it sometimes talking about talking to employees who used to work there um, or different organizations. So it's kind of been like hit or miss. But like I said, thankfully we have like really good reporters who have some of those deep contacts who have been able to make inroads. But yeah, I think the Department of the Interior thinks we're like pretty anti-Department of the Interior, pretty anti-Zinky. And does, does that concern you at all? That, it doesn't really concern me personally, again, because like I just like have so much confidence in like our writers. Uh, they're just like so good and I trust them a lot and they know this space. And so when one of my reporters pitches me and it's like, this is just not good for this reason. You know, like we should either write an op-ed or we need to report on this issue that could have serious, like, let's say like environmental um, repercussions. And I'm like, okay, I trust you, you know, like, let's go. Um, so th- 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 no, it doesn't really. What does the outside magazine look like in three to five years? Well, a lot more women. Uh, I think like covers 50-50. I think we're, hopefully in three to five years, we're just like, we're, we're on to the next conversation about like, how do we just continue becoming a stronger media brand? And this conversation about inclusivity um, is a conversation that happens in 2018, but then just becomes like part of who we are, part of our DNA. So in five years, someone says, oh yeah, like outside, that's the really like smart publication that's like covering all these really fascinating topics. And it speaks to me because I love the outdoors. Um, and because I really trust your stories and your storytelling. And I really love to read your long form features, but I also really love to read your like quick online, big ideas, um, that respond to something in the news that I just think are really like trustworthy and not just like, uh, hot air, you know, and blowing smoke that it's like, I, I, I know that writer and I want to keep reading her. Have the social platforms changed in three to five years? Or are we all still like chasing after Facebook's yeah. <laughs> bizarre algorithms or figuring out how to, you know, make our content work on Snapchat or, I know. or Instagram? Are you, you guys are on Snapchat. Yes, we are. We, it's, even not, ask about that. it's not a big yeah. traffic driver. It doesn't really drive any traffic. I would say like our main platforms right now that we're focusing on are like the, the big like Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. I don't know. Yeah, in five years, it'd be awesome not to be chasing so many platforms because I feel like we just don't, it's hard, right? It's hard for all of us in the media world. Like you just have to put a lot of energy into those spaces unless if you want to do it well. You know, I'd love to see our Facebook traffic just keep growing to have algorithms stabilize, maybe put media companies back at the forefront. But ultimately, like if I, I think like if I'm being realistic, like I know it's still going to be a hustle and 
we're just going to have to keep like being on our feet and thinking about the new platforms and thinking like, what do we put energy into versus what do we not? Um, but I think ultimately our strength is like strong storytelling and that's going to be pretty reliant on distribution methods that don't rely on Facebook and Twitter, uh, which is why we put a lot of energy into like newsletters and like more uh, referrals and just like more traffic that we can control. That's something I'd like to see. Same with podcasts. That's like, it's just like a venue that we can control more than we can on social. Thank you, Axie, for coming on the podcast and joining us here in studio in San Francisco. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here today. And thanks to all of you for listening. And as Peter Kafka always says, we only ask for one thing from you in exchange for this totally free podcast. Just tell somebody about it. Post it on Facebook that ever-changing algorithm. Uh, Email it to your friends, tweet about it. uh, However you communicate with people, just tell them about this podcast. Thanks to our sponsors. Thank you to Cadence 13 and Vox Media. They sell those ads that you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thank you to Joel Robbie, who edits this show, and to the producers of this show, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. Peter will be back next week, and we'll see you then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. 16 million new collar jobs will be created by 2024. To help fill them, IBM's new education model gives high school students workplace experience and an associate's degree. 90 P-TECH schools are already preparing graduates for tomorrow's STEM careers. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash P-TECH.